Welcome back to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Courtney. And I'm Patrick. Welcome back. Hi. Thank you for being patient with us once again. Uh, Funny story, when we were recording the last episode, right in the middle of it, I was like, I feel weird. And then the next morning, because we recorded at night, the next morning I woke up, COVID. (laughs) COVID. And then you started feeling better the weekend we had to move our girls into college. Into college, so then you were just behind the curve on that. So we had to postpone it a little week. However, however, we got this episode coming out today. Oh yeah, and some cool we're paying news. our dues. Cool, we're paying our dues a little bit. So some cool news: we did a co-episode uh, a few months ago with "Dying to Be Found" and Deborah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that was actually released this Wednesday. Or yes, this Wednesday, this past Wednesday night. Mm-hmm. We are going to put it up on our Patreon. But if you want to hear it, you're not a Patreon member, either join Patreon. Or you can hop over and find Dying to Be Found on Spotify or iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to podcasts at. You can listen yes. to that episode. Uh, and then we are also recording <gasps> another one this week, another co-episode. Oh, my gosh. With some friends of ours that will be coming we're recording it this weekend, and once we get that's back, a big surprise. We're gonna put that one up on Patreon for y'all. Also, and I have a, a really good case for that episode too. Yeah, you said that. You actually did two cases in this last week. Crazy, right? I'm paying my dues for taking that week <laughs> off, bro. <laughs> hey, do you do me? Uh, any more news? That's about it. Other than we're back and healthy. Knock on freaking wood. We're back. No one has COVID right now. Everybody's <laughs> healthy. Kind of back to normalcy around here, I guess. Yep, as normal as it gets anyway. As normal as it gets because it's hurricane season. Out of the normal again, for sure. Well, it is what it is, yeah. right? Well, we have a hell of a case today. Okay. Uh, I came across this horrific case. I'll use that word a lot this episode. And I came across this case by happenstance. And initially, I didn't want to cover it. I was like, no, I can't cover that. Because it has to do with the child. So I totally understand if this is something that not everyone wants to listen to. You can totally skip this episode if it's too much for you. However, I wanted to bring some attention to this case because it kind of it goes to show you how we as adults, parents, humans can just never let our guards down when it comes to our kids. There is just pure evil out there. That looks to target some of the most vulnerable members of society. And sometimes those are children, right? They usually are. They're, they're the most innocent, the most naive, and yep. easiest to overpower if that's the case. So with that, we are going to be discussing one of the most horrific and disturbing cases I've ever looked into. Wonderful. The case of 10-year-old Jamie Rose Bolin. She disappeared in April of 2006. When she was found, the world would be shocked to hear the atrocities that she suffered at the hands of an absolute monster. I'd venture to say probably one of the worst I've seen. Wow. Please be warned that today we will be discussing very triggering topics such as child sexual abuse, of course, violence against children, and cannibalism. Listener discretion is strongly advised. When you say that, that terrifies me because that's even worse than normal. Absolutely. Jamie Rose Bolin was a 10-year-old girl living in Purcell, Oklahoma, 
with her father, Curtis Bolin. Curtis worked as an auto mechanic and Jamie's mother, Jennifer, she was actually a truck driver. Have you heard of Purcell, Pat? Yeah. Because you lived in Oklahoma Oklahoma for a bit. So um, Jennifer, her mom was a truck driver, so she was on the road quite a bit. Okay. Curtis and Jennifer had separated just a couple of years after Jamie had been born. Now, because Jennifer was a truck driver, she wasn't able to see her daughter nearly as much as she would have liked. However, in her absence, Jamie was in very good hands. Curtis's whole life revolved around his daughter. He absolutely doted on his little girl. But of course, Jamie would always look forward to visiting her mom, who was living in Oklahoma City at the time with Jamie's half-sisters. She had a great with relationship with both parents, is, is what I'm getting at. And that's yeah. only probably 20 to 30 minutes away. Yeah. Oh, is it? Okay. According to Jennifer, 10-year-old Jamie was a caring and considerate girl. She was also extremely responsible for her age, definitely the type of kid who respected her parents and was kind to others. Jennifer often, this is so cute, Jennifer often referred to Jamie as her little strawberry shortcake, <laughs> the, the cartoon, yeah, which I thought was so sweet because Jamie had red hair and freckles. I figured just off that. So the name is just so fitting and you'll see a picture of her. She's precious. And here's a little bit about Jamie that I think it's important for us to know because she seemed like such an amazing little girl and we need to get to know her, Absolutely. right? She really sounded like every parent's dream. Jamie loved animals and Barbies. Barbies were her thing. And I just thought, I wish that she was around to see the Barbie movie, Barbie, right? Yeah. Barbies were her thing. In fact, Jamie had sewn by hand a little pillow for all of her Barbies to sleep on, <laughs> which is just so wholesome and sweet. She attended the fifth grade at Purcell Intermediate School in 2006, and she was always very eager to make friends. According to her classmates, She never had a crossword to say about anyone or anything. She was just super bubbly and positive. Jamie was a somewhat new resident of Purcell. She had only lived there about a year or so, but being the new girl in town did not stop her one bit from diving right into social life at school. Didn't sound like the kind of kid that was. No. She had a best friend named Carissa Jacobs, whom she had met at the beginning of that school year, and they both would attend Girl Scouts together. Carissa would later say, quote, I feel like she's my sister. We'd sit at the tables and eat breakfast together every morning. And this beautiful little girl was just finding her way at school, at her new school in 2006. She was making friends and just beginning her life, really. But unfortunately, in April of that year, everything would come crashing down. On April 13th, 2006, Jamie was seen at the Purcell Library. Everything seemed normal. She was actually passing some time on the library's computers. And the librarian speculated that she was just doing what she normally did, which was studying or doing her homework. Nothing out of the ordinary there. She was seen leaving the library at around 4 p.m., and was allegedly seen by several witnesses getting into a dark blue Ford or Chevy SUV driven by a man. And that would be the last time that little Jamie would ever be seen again. She never made it home that evening, and by 6 p.m., her father Curtis was, as you can imagine, worried sick. 
He called 911 and reported her missing, and within 24 hours, a massive search party had ensued. After the witnesses who allegedly saw Jamie climbing into an SUV outside of the library came forwards, an Amber Alert was issued. The alert described Jamie as being four feet tall, around 110 pounds, with red hair, blue eyes, and freckles. She had last been seen wearing a pink t-shirt, blue jeans, and either white tennis shoes or flip-flops. Eyewitnesses were also able to give a rough description of the man who they claimed was driving the SUV. They said that he was in his early 20s, very thin and clean-shaven with an earring in his left ear. Witnesses also speculated that there may have been some kind of damage to the passenger side of the SUV. So it wasn't a lot, but at least they had something to go on. Not a lot to go on, but it's something. Also, they claimed that the back of the SUV had a sticker on it with some kind of racing team or something of that nature. So, and it also had a Texas license license plate they thought that they saw. So, because the SUV supposedly had a Texas license plate, Jamie's parents wanted an Amber Alert issued in Texas as well, obviously. However, Texas officials said that Jamie's disappearance didn't meet their criteria, which is odd to me. Because they didn't have a suspect's name and only a partial license plate. Um, And they also didn't have enough evidence that Jamie had been taken against her will, you know. Right. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I digress. Let's get into the investigation. Okay. The FBI was eventually called in to, to the search and they began examining the library computers right? That Jamie had last been seen on. Maybe she had been talking to someone or in a chat room or who knows. That time period. Exactly. I don't have the conclusion of that part of the investigation. They never made that public. I'm not sure what, if anything, that they, if they found anything, um, the FBI seemingly held quite a bit of information during that time, close to the chest. However, a witness came forward and was like, No, she did not get into any SUV. A witness came forward and claimed that she had last seen Jamie riding her bicycle sometime between 4 and 5 p.m., like in her apartment complex where she lived. So if this was in fact true, that negated the whole Jamie getting into the SUV scenario. So investigators, without any other options, they started to work this angle. Right, yeah. They began questioning Jamie's neighbors, and several eyewitnesses said that they had, in fact, seen Jamie riding her bicycle in the complex. In fact, they had even seen her speaking to a man. The man's name, 26-year-old Kevin Ray Underwood. Always three names, right? Always three names. And he lived in the apartment directly underneath, so downstairs, from Jamie and her dad. So investigators called off the Amber Alert, and it was rumored that Underwood was immediately taken into custody. We'll kind of see what happens. Okay. After storming Underwood's apartment, it was soon announced that Jamie's body had, in fact, been found. Prosecutor Tim Kirkendall gave no official cause of death at that time. However, he publicly announced, I think it was over a press conference, that Jamie had been murdered in what he described as the most heinous and atrocious crime he had ever seen as a prosecutor. And that's, yeah. He added that he would be filing first degree murder charges against Kevin Underwood and seeking the death penalty without a doubt. 
I mean, if he's guilty, good. And you'll soon see why he was brazen enough to say that right off I mean, the bat. Jamie's family was literally sick with grief after Jamie's body was discovered. She wasn't missing very long. And of course, they still had hope, you know. Curtis, her dad, had to literally be taken to the hospital and be sedated after he was given the news of his daughter's murder. Jamie's mom was absolutely destroyed as well. Remember, she was a truck driver. Well, she was actually on the road in Arizona when she was given the news. Oh, my. This hit her particularly hard because she had been trying to hurry home to see Jamie. Yeah, she's going to carry the guilt of not being home. Yep. So when she went missing, she was on the road. So she unfortunately was robbed of that opportunity, her next outing with her daughter. They were left with one question. Why? Who was this man and what could have driven him to steal the life of an innocent little girl? Unfortunately, the answer would haunt Jamie's family and shock the nation. No one could have imagined a monster like Kevin Underwood ever existed. I mean, he's the thing. He's something that made him nightmares. He's just awful. So let's talk about Kevin. Oh, yes. Let's talk about Kevin. Like I said, Kevin lived in the apartment right downstairs and directly underneath Jamie and her dad. Neighbors in the apartment complex said that Kevin was always quiet and kept to himself. They said that he could often be seen watching the kids in the complex playing. And they shrugged it off because they figured that he may have had kids of his own. I'm, one of those kids were his. I guess there was enough people in the complex that not everybody knew each other, you know? Yeah, or maybe they thought maybe he had a kid somewhere. Maybe he was a divorced parent. Or right. maybe he wanted a kid. I mean... It, it looked innocent enough. It looked innocent enough, yeah, to where they just thought, well, one of those kids on the it playground must be his. On the creepy level, it was just... Yeah, I mean, it must not have been. Not, not enough to make set off bells or something. So fast forward to when Kevin came up on the investigator's radar after he was spotted with Jamie. He was stopped at a roadblock that police had set up during the investigation. So he was stopped at a roadblock near his apartment complex by two Oklahoma Highway Patrol officers. One of the troopers claimed that Kevin was, all she said was he was acting really weird, super suspicious, something's up with this guy, right? So they brought him in for questioning. And apparently the questioning just drew more suspicion because they brought Kevin back to his apartment and asked his permission to search. Kevin agreed. Right? Nothing to hide. Seems good so far. So they started to search. Well, they got to his bedroom. And in his bedroom closet, investigators found a large plastic container that was sealed with duct tape. Never good, right? No. When they asked Underwood what was inside... Kevin claimed that it was just his collection of comic books. Nothing to be suspicious of. However, once police kind of motioned like they were about to open the container, Kevin said, and I quote, go ahead and arrest me. She's in there. I hit her and chopped her up. End quote. Wow. And that's just the tip of this sick iceberg. Soon more details would be uncovered and it painted a chilling picture of what 10-year-old Jamie endured. Jamie's body was, of course, found inside the plastic container. And trigger warning here, we're talking about the state of her body. So it, it gets a little rough here. She was nude and she had been stuffed inside the container along with some towels. 
I assume that he figured that the towels would soak up the blood. Yeah, probably. Not sure. Jamie also had deep saw marks on her neck. Yeah. Her cause of death was listed as blunt force trauma to the head, as well as asphyxiation. It was calculated that she died on the same day that she was abducted. Jamie was also beaten. She had sustained blunt force trauma to the back of her right arm, both of her thighs, and left ankles. She also had abrasions on her nose that were consistent with fingernail marks. It was determined that the saw marks that Jamie had on her neck had occurred post-mortem. I guess that's somewhat of a blessing. I mean, it's definitely more of a blessing than... (sighs) Investigators think that this was an attempt to dismember her, behead her. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, Kevin didn't complete the task. We'll learn why later. I have a feeling. Of course, Underwood was arrested and taken in for questioning. And it was there that he gave the most chilling of confessions. So we just discussed the state of Jamie's body, and that was chilling enough. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's not But what Underwood had to say is really what nightmares are made of. So please be warned here, guys. Major trigger warning. Uh, but I'm going to recount this so that we are familiar with how he was able to lure Jamie in. I think that's important for us to know. So we can maybe... Learn from from this and prevent this from happening again. Okay. Now I'd love nothing more than to play his actual confession for you guys, because it is out there and you can listen to it on YouTube. But if I did, we would run into some copyright issues and the whole episode would be taken down. Uh, So I'll be using both direct quotes and some summaries of what he said in that interview. Effectively, I listen to it so you don't have to. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Thank you for that. You're welcome. So Underwood spotted Jamie and lured Jamie from outside her apartment by offering to show her his pet rat that he owned named Freya. So he, and remember, she loves animals. Yeah, and she's not familiar with him, but she's seen him enough around. Yeah, she's probably, oh, you're my neighbor. There's a little bit of familiarity there. A little bit. It's less like a complete stranger. And he probably had groomed her to the point, you know, just seeing her in passing. Hello, hey. Hey, honey. You know, that kind of thing. You know, just little conversations. So he asked Jamie if she'd like to come in and see the rat and also watch SpongeBob with him because he loved cartoons. Okay. Well, he claims, remember, this is all his word. Right. It's always their word. Which yeah. You never tell it's 100%. He claims that she agreed. He then says, and this is a direct quote. So she was sitting there watching that and we're talking about the show. She was in my apartment a good 15 minutes. And after she'd been in there a few minutes, I just kind of struggled with myself the whole time she was in there. End quote. Oh, he's going to play the pity party like he was trying to be good. Good versus evil. But I couldn't contain this monster. They always do that shit. He then said it wasn't a struggle between right and wrong, but it was a struggle with not wanting to get caught is what he admitted, which is crazy that he was just brazen enough to admit that. But I mean, good. He described how he had already had the handcuffs and duct tape out so that he could restrain someone and cover their mouth before they had time to yell. Mm. He said that he didn't want to knock her out immediately because he wanted to, and this is disturbing, quote, make her watch porn 
and this is a direct quote, he said, you know, telling them what was going on here, well, this is sex, you know, the guy does this, and this is called an orgasm, you know, teaching them, and hopefully they want to try it for themselves or something like that, end quote. Wow. I don't have words. But his tone in that interview is so, like, I'm just telling you about As a matter of fact. my day. You know, like I went to the grocery store and yeah, so this is what I got. A lot of those interviews we've listened to about a lot of the cases we've done, they're so matter they're of fact. Like, like, it's just like, it's like, yeah, I went to the store and grabbed a loaf of bread and picked up the mail. Yeah. I mean, it, it was that nonchalant, almost like as if to ask the investigator, like, you know what I mean, right? Like, you, know well, you, you do this, right? Every this day. Normal. Yeah. Normal. Disgusting. So Kevin then said that he reached up and grabbed a cutting board and hit her while she was sitting on the floor in between the TV and the rat cage. He claimed that this didn't knock Jamie out because she started screaming in pain and probably in shock, right? Yeah. He then said, quote, she's like crying, saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So I whacked her again. She jumped up, and I couldn't believe it didn't knock her out. But I hit her, I think, three times, maybe four Every time I hit harder, it was like, why isn't she going down? Every time I would hit her, she would be like, I'm sorry. Let me go. I won't tell. End quote. I mean, frightening isn't the right word. It's not a, there's no strong enough word. There's no word for that. No, there's no word for that. Well, Jamie was up on her feet by this time trying to flee. So Underwood then came up behind her and suffocated her by placing his hand over her mouth and nose at the same time. Mm. He stated that it took him about 15 to 20 minutes to kill Jamie, and he stated that he could not believe how strong she was. She had a lot of fight in her. And she, I mean, she put up a fight. She she really did. But she put up a fight and to the point where it, it even shocked him. Yeah. But he was annoyed for you living it. Like, you won't believe this. Like, we're supposed to feel so sorry for but him. How many serial killers have had those kind of, <clears throat> you know, you heard their interviews yeah. and they've had those kind of scenarios where, like, they, they're annoyed that their method didn't work right away. It was, it's like, it's like, it's supposed to be perfect. He confessed that, uh, remember the saw marks on her neck? I said we'd return mm-hmm. to, the, to him. He confessed that he initially wanted to behead Jamie while she was alive. But that never came to fruition. Um, But after she had already died, he started to try again. And he said it was just so hard. I just became so tired. Like, once again, we're supposed to feel so sorry for all of the work that it took for this to happen. You know what I mean? It's just sick. Mm -hmm. After Jamie had died... He sexually violated her. Disturbingly, he shocked investigators by stating that he had been fantasizing about cannibalizing someone for the past year. That just came out of the left, out of left field. That's one of those ones where the detectives and interviewers are sitting there and they're like, I'm sorry, what the, are you fucking kidding me at this point? Like, yeah, he was not kidding. No, I know, but no, I know. We'll see more evidence. Yeah, it just keeps coming. Like, he is straight from the bowels of hell, you know? I'm sorry, I popped my Gatorade bottle. Now, this was definitely a premeditated act. This was not a spur-of-the-moment thing. 
Investigators believe that he had been planning this for months, if not with Jamie, with somebody. Well, he had mentioned it. He said he'd been for a year. He's wanted to think about cannibalizing someone. He had wanted to cut her head off beforehand. He had the duct tape. He, I mean, he lays out how he's got this basically planned out, not necessarily for her, but like you said, like for someone. He's got this planned out in his head. To right. A lot of this stuff. Kevin wanted to, his goal was to kidnap, torture, behead, and eat a person. Why? Oh, my Lord. Well, he claimed that he had gone four years without sex, which I can totally see why. Who would want to be with him? And he was frustrated. That was one. And also his father was a butcher. And he claimed that because of that, he had been curious as to how maybe human flesh tasted. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I got that. Investigators had seized a number of items that pointed to Kevin planning all of this. Kevin planning to do exactly what he did. I mean, his confession alone tells you that. Yeah. They collected a decorative dagger, a hacksaw, a meat tenderizer, barbecue skewers, etc. All evidence pointing to his intention to eat the 10-year-old after he killed and raped her. After he was done with her, he stuffed her in the plastic container, surrounded her lifeless body with towels, and duct taped the lid shut. Next to that plastic bin, investigators found a box. The box was filled with, this is awful, sex toys, handcuffs, and Barbies. To lure children with, I'm sure. In Kevin's bedroom, under his bed, they found Jamie's bike. He had taken her bike and dismantled it and stuffed it under her bed. Took the whole thing apart. I guess he didn't want her bike to be found outside the apartment, obviously, so he just did away with it. Blood evidence was also found all over the apartment to include the bathroom, bedroom, and the kitchen. When word got out about Kevin's arrest and people started to hear about what he had done, no one, this is how it always goes, right? No one could believe he was capable of such a horrific crime. It's just this quiet, timid guy that never hurt anybody. Even Kevin's boss, he worked at Carl's Jr., which is a fast food restaurant. Hell yeah. Uh, Kevin's boss was like, he's so agreeable. Like, he doesn't argue. He's just always on time. He's kind. He's courteous. I mean, even Kevin's mom was like, he is a sweet boy. You know, like, how, I mean, we it's crazy. We see it time and time we again. We see it with Dahmer and the Butcher Baker. Yeah. All these people that are like these. Oh, they're such sweet, or Gein, they're all these sweet, innocent people, like, they live two lives. They're two different persons. But it would later come out that Kevin had been up to no good for quite some time. (laughs) So he had a blog, a very scary blog, and it offered a little insight into Kevin's demented psyche. In this blog, Kevin also often talked about cannibalism and joked about it, in fact. One post he wrote said, quote, if you were a cannibal, what would you wear for dinner? End quote. Of course, nobody answered him because everyone's like, what the fuck? Everyone's like, uh, weirdo now. So he responded to his own question. And um, his answer was, quote, the skin of last night's main course. End quote. He also openly discussed over his blog his battle with depression, isolation, and social anxiety, and talked about how his fantasies were just getting weirder and weirder, saying, quote, if people knew the kind of things I think about anymore, I'd probably be locked away. Just say he discussed his psychopathy. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and no one could have foreseen just how volatile he was. You can say anything on the internet, you know? And we've read things on the internet. I was about to say, we've we've covered a bunch of cases. I feel like that early 2000s, really, when the internet kind of kicked off big. You know, late 90s, and yeah, but early 2000s, right when they really got blogs and MySpace and all that stuff. People used to write a lot of crazy shit on But a lot of these people that did these things, they... There were precursors. There were precursors in Columbine. There were precursors with him, Jasmine Richards, and Ronald Yeah, mm-hmm. There were all precursors of these activities and these comments being made online that everyone just kind of was like, oh, it's teen angst or whatever, you know, blowing off some steam, whatever it is. But in some of these cases, it turned out to be just a warning, really. You know, most people on the internet are a lot of talk. I mean, nowadays, yeah. Everybody, but in fact, they're all talk for the most part until they're not, right? Until they're not. Until they until follow not. through. And that's what's so scary, you know? Anyways, a psychiatrist who evaluated Kevin once he was in custody said that Kevin had been on medication for anxiety, depression, um, PTSD, complex PTSD, and social anxiety as well for, um, sorry, and also excessive compulsive disorder. However, he stated that the medications would not have contributed to Underwood, Underwood's violent behavior. So the medications don't have a side effect that would cause him to do something so like this, obviously. diagnose this man. Me? No, I'm saying, well, you're <laughs> well, like, like, oh, <laughs> saying, you know, this wouldn't have caused that behavior, but what I'm saying is, well, so what you're saying then, psychologist, yeah. sir, ma'am, is you misdiagnosed the motherfucker because he had the violent behavior then without the medicine. Well, no, he was on those medicines. But I'm saying the medicines didn't cause the violent behavior. Oh, yeah. The underlying thing with him. I, I see what you're saying. So yeah. So you may have been wrong on your diagnosis. I guess so. Okay, so let's get to the trial. Obviously, Kevin was arrested and charged with Jamie's murder. He was brought in for his arraignment. Remember, he confessed and everything. Mm-hmm. So he was brought into the arraignment, and he was charged with first-degree murder. And he had the audacity to plead not guilty. I would have hit him with kidnapping, indecent assault. Of a I'm minor, sure they did. I'm first sure they did. murder, attempted kidnapping. I hit him with everything I could find. And because of that, that meant that Jamie's family had to endure, endure a, a trial. Yeah. A preliminary hear- hearing was scheduled for August 22nd. After the disturbing testimony of one of the FBI agents on the scene, the judge felt that there was enough evidence to send Kevin Underwood to trial, obviously. So finally, after being put off and put off and put off, the trial began in February of 2008. That's two years. District Attorney Greg Mashburn told, um, gave opening statements and told the jury that when Kevin lured 10-year-old Jamie to his apartment, he had already devised a plan to rape, torture, and consume the flesh of this child. Imagine being on that jury and hearing that you know, there's a picture of Jamie up in the middle of the trial, and you see, and then you hear what had been done to her. Yeah, that's, oh, my God. And it's even crazy. I can't even fathom. I can't either. And it's even crazier to me to think that we've all been called for jury duty, right? Yeah. You go in, in the group, where you're sitting there with oh, like 400 people, you're like, oh, let me get out of this today. And they're like, you're picked. You're like, damn it, what do I get? And you walk in on that. Yeah. God, just, well, uh, I would whoa. just die of a heart attack, I think. I'm being therapy for a long time. He described the cold and gruesome way that 26-year-old Underwood murdered Jamie before trying to behead her and how he planned on keeping Jamie's head as a trophy of sorts, which was new info. As time went on and the details of the murder came to light, 
I can't help but think of Jamie's mom and dad sitting in that courtroom. If they were able to, I would have, I don't know if I would have been able to. I don't know what I would have been like. I can't even put my mind in that dark place. After testimony from both sides, the jury left to deliberate. It took them 20 minutes. I mean, would you, I wouldn't expect much. I was surprised it took that I'm long. surprised it took. They probably were like, okay, he's guilty. You want to order some sandwiches? Like, we can't go right out. Or someone probably told him, you can't go right back out. Exactly. You got to sit here for a minute and act like you're actually thinking. Of course, Kevin Underwood remained unaffected as the jury came back with a guilty verdict. And he was just completely emotionless. He just stared straight ahead. The courtroom was dismissed, and they returned the following Monday for the penalty phase. Remember, the prosecution was seeking the death penalty. Mm -hmm. During the penalty hearing, Kevin's defense team portrayed him as being just a mentally ill, out-of-touch, quiet man who lived an unremarkable life, and he had simply spiraled out of control. Poor him. Poor him. But the most impactful statements of the hearing came from Curtis and Jennifer. Yeah. Which, it always is the how they got those statements out, I have no idea, but they're stronger than I would have been. Because they want good to, for them. They, they, they need to talk to him. They need to say something. And they want to make sure he gets. They want to make sure he gets his penalty, but a lot of parents just want to have their final word to that person that did that to them. Jamie's grandmother came forward and said, I've been against the death penalty my whole life, but I want him to die for this. You know? Oh, and I totally can her? see that. No, definitely don't blame her. When asked what uh, Jennifer, when she was giving her statement, when asked what she missed most about her daughter, Jennifer tearfully stated, I mean, everything. I find it hard to pay attention anymore. I drift off thinking about things we used to do and all the plans we had in the future. Curtis, he broke my heart. He recounted the horrific day from memory, what he did remember of it. When he found out his daughter's body had been found. He said that the whole world just came down on him at once. And there were times, there are times still that he's just not sure what to do anymore. He doesn't know how to move forward. Heartbreaking. Well, finally, the judge, I assume, agreed and issued a death sentence to Kevin Underwood for the murder of Jamie. Once again, Kevin showed absolutely zero emotion as the verdict was read. And the only time he spoke was to confirm that he understood the sentence. The judge was like, bro, are you hearing what I'm saying? And he like, yeah, I guess. So although it didn't bring their little girl back, it's some semblance of justice, but not really, you know. No, you can't undo and you can't, you can't change that. But at least he's not going to walk free or go to a mental ward for the rest of his life. He's, he's going to die too. As of today, Kevin Underwood is 41 years of age. And he remains on death row at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary in McAllister, Oklahoma, where I hope he is absolutely miserable. I'd put a good wager that he's had a rough time. Good. According to the Purcell Register, quote, more than 1,000 mourners turned out for Jamie Rose's funeral at Purcell High School's Boney uh, Matthew Fieldhouse on April 20th. She was laid to rest in Guthrie's Summit View Cemetery. According to her obituary in the Purcell Register, Jamie Rose enjoyed singing, sewing, riding four-wheelers, and watching movies. Bless her heart. So, what can we learn from this? I think, as a parent, the biggest thing I personally take away from this case is the importance of reiterating to our children that if an adult wants to be 
alone with you and ask something of you run like hell. I mean, under no circumstance would a full grown man or woman need the assistance or private company of a child. Period. 100%, 100%. I, there are no exceptions. Period. 100%. It's much like you said during many of the episodes. During um, Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy help yourself. Like, <laughs> there is no point where a grown man needs a 120-pound, 110-pound woman to help him change a tire. What about, yeah. A kayak. Or like, what about me tells you like, I can help you with your flat freaking tire? All these stories is like, <laughs> you know what? You're good. I mean, obviously, she's 10. She's yeah. Not, she's not on that level of comprehension. Yep. Yeah. Tell your kids, like, if you don't know them, first of all, don't even talk to them. Strange or danger. I don't care if you're your neighbor. No. An adult, An adult no. does not need anything from you to include your company. To watch TV with. No, that's even weird. No. You got a pet rat? Good. Tell it high for cool. me. Peace. You a picture that you can show me right here outside in the street? With my dad with present? everyone else around? <laughs> or maybe I can go get my dad and he can accompany me to come see your pet rat. I, I don't even know how the quote goes, but I saw this quote the other day. It was probably on a true crime podcast Instagram page. But we need to start raising our, it said little girls, but children in general, to be comfortable with saying no, you know, in doctor's offices and be comfortable with saying no and setting your boundaries, you know? Absolutely. And, yeah, and it's absolutely true. For him, and it's, yes, he deserves to die. I hope he burns in hell. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I mean, I couldn't think of. A better outcome for him. And I, I vaguely remember this. Do you? When um, you lived there? I didn't know the detail. I, so when she disappeared, I was in Korea. Mm-hmm. And then, because I lived in Oklahoma until 05, and I was back in yeah. the end of 06. I yeah. remember the trial, and I remember hearing a whole lot of media attention on it. Oh, yeah. It was nationwide. Was, I want to say 45 minutes from where I was in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's you go chicken shade, turn right. Yeah. I don't remember how far it was, but I remember there was a lot of coverage about this creek. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's shocking, right? It's insatiable news, but there's a, a little girl behind it, you know, and and that's what hit home for me. And cases like this, although it's extremely uncomfortable for us to cover, imagine how horrific it is for Jamie's parents to sit with the knowledge of this every day. Oh, I couldn't imagine it. I mean, you know? Any parent out there knows the most terrifying thing in your life is losing a child. Even the older they get, you know. I don't care if they're 20-something. It's still a terrifying thing. Oh, absolutely. But uh, but for some reason, well, not for some reason, just the fact of, like, a 20-year-old. Yeah. It's just on another level. My, you get a chance to see life. My two, my two daughters are full-grown adults now. I mean, technically, 18, legally, almost yeah. 19. and I mean, Legally, they're full-grown adults. I don't know about everything else they do. They yeah. can be 85, and they will still be my babies. I mean, the greatest fear every parent has is to outlive their child. Mm-hmm. That's the, the, the statement. Yeah, that's the only way it's supposed to go. It, it's unnatural it's for unnatural it to happen the other way around. So, and then having to live with that is probably the worst part. Of the, well, it's not the worst part of the story, but it's one of the worst aspects of the story. That parents have to live with not only the loss of their child, right, but the way they lost their child and what was done to their child to be taken from. Horrible. So, I mean, what we can do in Jamie's honor is teach every single one of our kids not to give in to these monsters, yeah. not to trust anybody. Stay involved. You know, make sure your kids know not to do this. Say something if you see something going on. That's the biggest thing I could take away from it, too. Is if mm-hmm. that, did someone in that apartment complex see him talking to her on the bike? Walking to his apartment? Obviously, they did. Somebody could be like, hey, yeah. what the fuck are you doing with that 10-year-old? Yeah. I'm like, hey, I don't think your dad wants you to go down. You don't have to be a confrontation. You say, hey. No. 
Hey, I don't think your dad wants hey, you. Hey, y'all doing okay? Or like, hey, what are y'all up to? Yeah. Well, I think your dad was looking for you. You know what I mean? Like, you strike up, if you strike it. up a conversation with an you adult, I mean. Intervene some way or shape or form. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe you're a non-confrontational person that doesn't want to talk to anybody. Intervene if you're an adult. I mean, go, not go as a child. Go knock on my dad's door and be like, hey, I saw daughter go downstairs with her. I mean. I mean just do something. Hindsight. Do something. Don't do nothing. We don't know. Of course, we do not know the you know, what happened. And we don't know the situation. We don't know the apartment complex. We don't know how close these people were, how big the complex was. But see something, say something, right? If it doesn't look right, tell somebody, say something. But um, her case definitely serves as a reminder that evil exists. You know, and I think we... uh, We forget sometimes. I mean, I know that we cover... And especially... With our podcast, we tend to cover the world's most evil, and a lot of that happened what in the seventies, and you know what I mean. I mean and we've this covered, we've covered from the seventies to the two thousands. The two we've covered some that were this is ten years ago, recent. And he's just you can't tell me he wouldn't have kept going if he would have gotten away with this. He would have kept going. I think he was he was another you know Bundy or Dahmer in the movie. Dahmer. <laughs> I, I know Dahmer is the comparison because mm-hmm. obviously the cannibalism, but. I just think his lack of giving a shit about any of it and his so straightforward matter of fact, like, I'm just going to keep it. I think he would have, just like every serial killer, escalated a little bit more and more. Like, I need it more. I mm-hmm. need another fix. He would. He probably, 100%, would have continued on. So, to Jamie's family and friends, on the off chance that y'all ever hear this. Uh, I don't know how you could listen to this if you did. I know, but... Not- I'm trying to be as respectful as I can. God bless you guys. We we admire all of y'all. And um, yeah, that's that's all I have to say about it. I have big feelings about this. Yeah, it's a hard one. It's a hard one to do. But it's important. Conversation it's, Im- it's important it's in my view. It's always important. Yeah, because kids are our responsibility. All of us, not just me and you. There's no longer the days of when we were kids. And the TV would come on at 10 o'clock at night with the commercials. Do you know where your kids are? To like, remind the parents. To remind the parents that you have freaking kids. Go see if they're home. Oh, yet. yeah. Like, oh, shit. Where is, where is little Tommy? No, it's not those days anymore. You have to remember, I grew up with parents that were not like that. My parents did not let me go out until the street lights came on. My no, parents okay. were like, uh, you going out, I'm going with you. You didn't have to remind <laughs> us growing up to be home or our parents that we were out. Our parents knew. They just watched the street lights. Like, literally. Yeah. If your ass wasn't in by the time it was dark and the street light was on, you were done. I had very over... I mean, I'd be on my bicycle doing about 200 miles an hour trying to get home. Like, oh, shit. I had the, the mom that says, no, it's nighttime. You can't go out. You're allergic to mosquitoes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I grew up different. <laughs> Absolutely. And we, we have to add a little levity to these episodes, especially at the end. Because we just, do. I'm not so trying to, to add humor. I'm just trying to... Yeah. No, I know. Everybody to process this, and you know, like I said, we have bonus content coming up on Patreon this weekend. Yes. Go over to Dying to Be Found. You can hear that as the most recent episode. Um, we'll have other information coming up for you guys next time about when we're doing this weekend with a yeah. fellow podcaster and friend of ours. Yes. And then uh, that's all I really have. Thank you so much, guys. Be good to each other. We love y'all.